By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded with me, Scott Phillips. And me, Vittoria Zoli. Hey, Vittoria, how's it going? All good? I am great-ish, I would say. I'm a little bit under the weather, but uh, but holding up. How are things with you, Scott? Yeah, they're all good. It's certainly been a frantic few days. Um, so for the podcast today, Vittoria, I think we should spend some time talking about um, the recent policy decisions of the Fed, uh, the ECB, and the Bank of England. Uh, obviously, a lot of um, interesting stuff came out over the last few days. Uh, I'd like to get your take on that and also discuss what it means for emerging market financial conditions. Uh, I want to get your view too on the US dollar. Uh, rates clearly having an impact there. Uh, we've seen some strength in the last uh, few weeks, but I think there are some other factors going on too. Um, we've also got the Polish elections coming up, uh, and I'm hoping we can bring in the sovereign analyst, uh, Stefan Dick, to give his perspective on those. Uh, and then, Victoria, if we've got time, I would like to discuss the very exciting news that India will be included in uh, the JP Morgan Government Bond Index from 2024. So um, how does that all sound? I'm ready. Awesome. Right, Victoria. So I think we should spend a little bit of time talking about uh, the Fed, the ECB and the Bank of England decisions. Um, I mean, they are still, they say these central banks still very much front and center in terms of what they mean for financial markets and for investor sentiment in general. Uh, maybe, Victoria, you could take us through your views on the announcements. Uh, it seems to me that we had some different thinking um, from those three organizations, um, but it does, at least to me, look like the US is increasingly an outlier in terms of their thought process. Um, what's your take? Indeed. So, Policy rates reached new highs in the euro era, while in the US and the UK were held. Uh, but to me, you know, what was interesting was the messaging and actually even the supporting analysis. So apart from the UK, which, I mean, I would say is less relevant for emerging markets, decisions were in line with consensus. But for the US, it was clear that more rate hikes are possible and also the potential for meaningful cuts next year is reducing. So, you know, I would agree with you that the Fed is uh, certainly becoming an outlier with a decidedly more hawkish tone than, than the others. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think it was interesting that while the hold from the Fed was certainly in line with consensus, we did see a movement in Treasury bond yields, right? I mean, the 10-year was up um, 20 basis points or so, uh, and the interest rate curve has certainly uh, inverted further. And I guess it is all driven by this new dot plot that they put out as part of the release, right? Yeah, no, I think the Fed uh, wanted to give the signal that big easing is unlikely anytime soon. You know, the projections were pretty revealing. So let me let me start from growth. So growth forecasts were revised up from 1% to 2.1% in 2023 and from 1.1% to 1.5% in 2024. While it said core inflation was revised slightly down in 2023 from 39 to 3.7%. 
But the unemployment rate projection is actually the one that surprised me the most. So it was revised down, and now the Fed projects it to go down from 4.5 to 4.1% in 2024. I mean, I just gave you a lot of numbers, but hopefully this makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think coming back to the dot plot, which of course is this um, you know, view from each member of the committee on on their view of, of forward-looking rates, obviously signaling that a um, another rate hike is certainly possible this year. Uh, in fact, I think the dots even show that the Fed uh, would expect to keep rates higher for longer, right? I mean, last uh, the last release they were talking about potentially 100 basis points worth of cuts for next year. Now it only looks like 50 basis Fifty basis points worth of cuts, according to the most recent uh, dot plot. So I, I think this um, is a sign of, of of growing hawkishness. But even looking at this set of new projections compared with where uh, the OIS curve is, for example, uh, which is still forty fifty basis points below, even after this new dot plot, there's still a little bit of disagreement between um, between the Fed and, and the market. Would you would you say that? Yes, actually, Scott, this is a very, very good point. So I still see the US as an outlier here, especially in the context of China's growth slowing and Europe too. But, you know, to be honest, all this, I, I think is still in line with our views. I mean, the more cautious thinking around rates, uh, the fast decision making and the read across to financial conditions. The major point I may be more focused on right now is the oil price. Uh, right now, oil price is at $95 a barrel. Anything more than this level? Yeah, I, I start to worry uh, about, you know, the general view for an easing of financial conditions. And then obviously, it is inflation in emerging markets and then uh, progressively weaker dollar. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely agree. And I think it was certainly interesting looking at the uh, Consumer Confidence Survey, which um, obviously is published by the Consumer Board. Uh, a couple of days ago, it was a little bit below expectations, but I think it was clear to me at least that um, uh, you know the, the the U.S. consumers are still you know very worried about high energy costs. I mean, yeah, indeed, oil prices is definitely something to to watch out for. But we haven't talked about the risk of another impasse over the debt ceiling and the risk of uh, U.S. government shutdown. So there's also the risk that the oil strikes escalate. But at the moment, we are not really sufficiently concerned regarding our macro projection. But these are clearly points to to watch. The only thing that comes to my mind right now is that the Fed is likely to hold off on further tightening at the November meeting, but then centering attention on the December meeting, where the Fed could eventually fulfill the final hike embedded in the annual dot plot for 2023. But you just uh, talked about this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not sure whether I'd agree with that or not. I mean, I think um, certainly something we have to keep an eye on, right? And I think um, the prospect of another hike is certainly gathering steam, whether it's November, whether it's December. Um, still, obviously, a big discussion point as we go through the next few weeks. So, uh, yeah, uh, thanks for your thoughts there, Victoria. Awesome. Let's move on to uh, another topic, which is the US dollar. Um I mean, Vitalia, it's been a choppy few months for the dollar rights, um, peaking in October last year, uh, but reaching something of a low in, in July this year. But yeah, since July, over the last few weeks or so, last few months, the dollar has strengthened quite a bit. And we have started to see some emerging market currencies underperforming some of the other uh, developed market FX pairs, um, which is certainly something um, that we're keeping an eye on. I mean, Vittorio, what's your take on that? 
So the first thing to say, and by the way, this is actually an ongoing topic of discussion or team meetings, uh, is that I do not see the recent dollar appreciation as only a US story because there are other key developments to, to highlight. So clearly, and I mean, we talked about this already, the longer the US economy remains in growth mode, with obviously a tight labor market and elevated inflation, the higher rates will remain, and then obviously the greater upside risk for the dollar. But let's not forget what is happening in China and Europe. You know, I do not think we can look at the dollar developments as a US story per se, because for both like China and Europe regions, it appears as if activity is slowing down more than in the US. So you see like you have this counterweights. And we have also the clearly dovish BOJ, the Japanese Central Bank, which is clearly, you know, relevant for the broader APEC region. Scott, do you or do you have a different view? Is there something I'm missing here? No, no, I, th- I think that's right. Um, and I think we are starting to see maybe a little bit more differentiation in FX performance. Um, and I think this really reflects, I think, the differences in uh, the yields uh, of the currencies. Um, and I think probably it's important to highlight some of the Asian currencies in this respect. Uh, I mean, you've got currencies like uh, the Thai BAT, um, quite low yielding, uh, both in terms of their nominal and, and their real yields. It's interesting to see that it's these currencies that are coming under uh, a little bit more pressure at the moment as investors seek higher returns in in other markets, um, like in LATAM, for example. Um, it was also quite interesting to see the other day the decision by the Thai central bank hiking rates by a further 25 basis points, despite headline inflation being below 1% year on year, uh, which is obviously quite, quite a low level compared to some other regions. Um, I'd also probably highlight some of the Eastern European currencies, uh, which have depreciated by, I would say, 7 to 10% or so in the last three months. And there are also some of the lower yielding currencies in, in the sort of broader EM universe. Um, yeah, would you, would you agree with that, Vesoria? Yeah, I mean, um, I think this is uh, completely yeah, in line. I mean, again, looking at the main driver, uh, which I think is the interest rate differential, it's actually very interesting to see more support for the higher yielding currencies like uh, the Philippine peso and the Indonesia rupee. And of course, I mean, the Latin currencies in general, obviously notwithstanding some of the more recent underperformance of the Mexican peso. But also let me highlight trade, which is another important secondary driver for effects movement. So for instance, we, we, we are going to watch closely the net oil importers if oil price keeps rising. But coming back to Latam, actually, shout out to the Colombian peso, which is the only yen currency to have strengthened against the US dollar in the last three months by around like 2%. Mm. I guess, I guess as you said earlier, I mean, we shouldn't forget about other uh, key risk events which could have an impact on the dollar too, right? I mean, um, I guess by the time this podcast goes out, we'll know <laughs> or not whether we are facing the prospect of another shutdown of the US government. Um, certainly not the first time we've been in this position, and I think um, our views on this are pretty well established. Um, I guess, for sorry, it's fair to say, I don't think we think a, you know, um, you know I guess a short-term shutdown, you know, will will have only really a, a material impact on um, the broader U.S. economy growth and, and various financial market indicators. If it turns into something worse, I don't think that is our case right, our base case right now. Uh, but I think most of the hits uh, to consumption, in particular, would be temporary. Uh, and reversible once the government uh, reopens. But as I said, uh, the longer it persists, the more 
uncertainty and the more negative that could be. Yeah, indeed. You know, as, as always, a lot of, a lot of headwinds to, to, to watch out for. Okay, so let's maybe move away from macro and, and bring in Stefan Dick uh, at this point. And Stefan, great um, to join. Uh, really happy to have you here today. And I understand you're actually talking to us uh, from Poland. It's our Polish conference going on today. Yeah. Hi, hi Scott. Hi, Victoria. And uh, great to have the opportunity to speak here. And indeed, I'm, I'm talking to you from Poland because we have our, uh, well, annual CE Summit in, in Warsaw. It's uh, has been annual, but in fact, uh, it's the first time we are back in person again. And uh, great weather, good attendance, great conference. And in fact, we got quite a few questions on the on the upcoming elections in Poland. Great. Hi, Iris Stefan. Thank you very much for joining us. So, indeed, as you said, we have the election coming up next month. And it's fair to say uh, Poland, and I would say also more specifically relations with Ukraine, have been in the news a lot recently from uh, grain disputes to military support forces. So I was thinking, if you could give us your view on the significance of this election in a more international context. Yes, I mean, you, you rightly mentioned the sort of noise coming out of Warsaw from leading members of the current government uh, when it comes to Ukraine. And in my view, I mean, this is a reflection of the ongoing election campaign to some degree. I mean, the grain dispute is not something new that has been around for a while. Uh, remember, Poland uh, has also unilaterally, together with some other CE countries, blocked um, Ukrainian uh, grain trade um, because of, obviously, a large portion of the electorate for the ruling PIS party is uh, from the uh, from the from the countryside, basically, and and living off agriculture. Um, the other um, on on military aid, uh, obviously, the prime minister has uh, backpedaled a bit and. But also this should be seen in the domestic context, but also in the international context, because obviously the government has announced to increase defense spending. There has been also recently news that there will be a bilateral loan from the U.S. to purchase um, uh, new equipment from the from the U.S. And clearly Poland is the key partner in Europe and also for the U.S. in this uh, in this yeah uh, still unfortunately ongoing war uh, in Ukraine. Okay, um, so turning to to the election. The incumbent peace party seems to be the front runner looking at the opinion polls, um, pulling around 35% compared with the city coalition, which was around 27, 28%. Um, so what will such an outcome mean in terms of uh, forming a government and what are the possible implications for policy? Actually, I wanted to ask another thing. Uh, what have the parties been focusing on for this election? Right. Um, I mean, for the elections in about two weeks' time, the current voting intention polls really show a relatively inconclusive picture. Yes, PIS party is leading, but even with this lead, if it were the outturn of the elections, um, this would not be sufficient to form a, a, a single-party government, so they would also re rely on um, on support. Uh, and similar for the civic uh, platform, the, the, the main opposition party, uh, voting intentions are even a bit lower and, and that could complicate things even more. So it's really hard to tell. I mean, it's not a clear-cut um, picture that, that evolves from that. And uh, I guess a realistic assumption would then be or could be a, a hung parliament and then um, another round of elections the later in the year, early next year. In terms of focus of the different parties, or let's let's simplify it, in the focus of the two main uh, parties, um, Clearly, the debate has been uh, mostly focused on the 
um, sort of, yeah, broader rule of law situation. I mean, uh, remember there have been attempts also by the government uh, or they have established a chamber to look into previous relations to Russia and, and that was more or less seen uh, by the opposition as an attempt to influence the elections. Um, in terms of policy implications, I mean, for the things that that, that, that worry us or that, that uh, relate uh, to, to credit challenge for Poland is clearly the relations with the EU. Um, as you know, the spat over the rule of law deterioration has led to the blockage of, uh, of sizable uh, EU funds. Um, so Poland has decided to pre-fund those and that adds to fiscal spending and government debt unless there's a uh, a, a quick um, a quick rapprochement reach with the EU um, that could even be a, a lasting effect uh, that uh, only part of the funds get unlocked. And also, um, I mean, that's that's part, probably the potentially quite a positive outcome if if the opposition parties come to power, that they would be quicker in resolving this, uh, this dispute. But on broad economic fiscal policies, uh, particular, I mean, we have seen a history of uh, fiscal prudence in Poland over the years. We would expect this to uh, uh, to return after after twenty four. Um, but clearly, there's also more uh, more controversial issues like the centralization of power uh, around PIS in in several institutions, also the media, and uh, some reforms to the state on enterprises that the uh, opposition parties might uh, might likely undo. Okay, sure. Um, let me turn back to to credit. I mean, I know it's still like early days and it's difficult to speculate on the outcome and it's not our role to speculate. But um, what can you tell us for Poland's credit profile, depending on who wins on the 15th of October? Yeah, good question. I mean, I think I alluded a bit already in my earlier answer that uh, we would expect broad continuity in, in, in fiscal policy. So uh, right now, the the budget that was drafted for 24 still has a relatively wide deficit. It didn't come as a, as a surprise to us. In the run-up to the elections, there has been an amendment to the budget and some additional social uh, spending handouts and uh, and more permanent payments to citizens. Um, but overall, we would expect a return to deficits of 3% of GDP or lower over the medium term. Um, as I said, the main uh, credit implication that we've also cited uh, previously. I mean, the rating is a too stable, so we don't don't see the risks uh, turn to to the negative or the positive. But um, what could be really something that could change the rating down or the outlook to to negative would be a further deterioration in the rule of law situation, combined probably with um, a more prolonged period of loose fiscal policies and uh, and a sharpened deterioration of of government debt. So, baseline would be that regardless of who forms the next government, there would be a return over the next two years or so to these more prudent paths. Uh, if not, that could become a credit challenge over time. Thank you very much for joining, Stefan. That was extremely interesting, and uh, I hope you are going to enjoy the rest of the conference. Okay, great, thanks. So, Scott, I'm coming back to you. We're not done yet. We have another topic that I would like to discuss. I thought we should talk about the news that India's domestic currency government bonds will soon be included within one of the widely followed indices, which is the JP Morgan GBI-EM, the government body index, starting in mid-2024. Yeah, absolutely, Victoria. I mean, this is something um, that's been talked about for quite a few years now, the potential for this, um, but it does seem as if more than... $300 $300 billion worth of uh, India's government debt will be eligible for inclusion in the index. Um, 
and and as a whole, um, India's weight in the index once it's been revised will be anywhere between sort of nine ten percent, depending on uh, which uh, flavor of the index uh, you're looking at. Uh, and given that more than two hundred billion dollars worth of assets under management follow this index, you're looking at the potential for around about uh, twenty plus billion dollars of inflows into India's domestic market, which is uh, pretty cool. Wow, I mean that's that's actually pretty exciting. But am I understanding this right that they were not the only one? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, another index provider, FTSE Russell. Um, also made a determination on the inclusion of India, um, uh, but a, a, a dis- slightly different decision, actually, um, not to include this time around. But actually, I think that the big focus is on the JP Morgan Index. So this is actually a pretty big deal for India overall. Now, I have a very basic question. <laughs> what does this all mean? Yeah, I mean, maybe let's just start with India. I mean, I think it's fair to say that um, it's a positive development, um, but obviously the read across from inflows to, I guess, other more possibly more relevant macro indicators isn't straightforward or, or you know, um, uh, will generate the same sort of headlines. I mean, at the margin, you could argue that better liquidity and, and higher demand for India's government debt will, over time, um, you know, support their domestic debt costs and, and the financing of its current account deficit. But on the other side, um, you know, the government and the central bank may be, you know, a little bit more concerned that foreign inflows will potentially increase the volatility of their local markets. I mean, officials, you know, not just in India, more generally, have in the past worried about the consequences of um, hot money, you know, kind of capital coming in and out uh, from from international investors. Um, whether this is the, so true for a country like India in comparison with maybe frontier markets is certainly a, a discussion point. Uh, but I think at the very least, the Reserve Bank of India will uh, ascribe more uh, weight and consideration to, to you know to how foreign investors will respond uh, in in their decision making. Okay, I mean that's that's all makes sense. Thanks thanks for highlighting uh, potential benefits and also you know points of uh, concern. Um, I guess there are inevitably some losers too, right? The weights need to up to 100%. So inevitable, some emerging markets will see the, the opposite effect. But I think we're talking about minimal amounts overall, so not much of an impact. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. I can't see that being huge. Um, but some obviously some of the established names in the index will, will of course, um, see, see a slightly lower weighting. Okay, good. Vittoria, uh, I think we'd better leave it there for today. Um, thank you very much for listening to today's episode. Join us next time for another edition of Emerging Markets Decoded. And in the meantime, if you have any comments or topic suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to email us at empodcast at moody's.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.